And you think of this as sort of like a samurai mindset. It's like, I'm willing to die if I know I'm going in the right direction. If I know that this is the right way to go, then I'm willing to just put it all on the line. Are you ready? Are you shitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Top divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. It's episode 51 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. We are coming off an absolutely terrific 50th Shine On Podcast episode, which was a blast. And producer Dave, I heard from so many people following the episode, guests and listeners of the podcast, which featured a look back, a Shine On Podcast review of the moments, the themes, the guests. And wow, was this fun. Dave, we had a blast. I can tell you, as you know, as I was thinking about prepping for this episode, Episode 51. I said to you, Dave, what do we do for an encore? <laughs> I mean, look, coming off the high, yes. the buzz of episode 50. Look, it's not an easy act to follow for episode number 51. You talk about hard acts to follow. Yep. Look, you didn't want to be the shortstop for the Yankees who followed Derek Jeter. That's right. <laughs> you don't want to be the guy who replaced Michael Jordan or the coach that followed Bill Jackson and all his championships. So producer Dave and I had to think long and hard about today's show, about today's guest, and lucky that we have with us the perfect guest lined up for today. And so coming up, I am joined by New York City sports psychologist, Dr. Jonathan Fader. We're going to talk with Dr. Fader about how he uses performance coaching to help athletes, executives, artists, and everyday people be better as they navigate life and all that comes with it. We get Dr. Fader's takes on all things relationships and how our personal lives can impact our professional lives, whether on the football field or in the office. We talk Tom and Giselle and get an inside look to strategies for success. Producer Dave, I know you have the docket all teed up, so let's fire it up. All right, let's do it. And now, let's see what's on the docket. Well, feels like we've been talking about Tom Brady and Giselle all year, and the saga continues. Item one. New York Times article headline reads, Marriage is hard. Just ask Tom and Giselle. And, of course, it's the most high-profile divorce I can imagine among not one but two of the most prominent celebrities around. And this article kind of says, you know, they're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But tell us what you thought when you read this piece in the Times. Dave, you're exactly right. First, look, it's a brilliant guest essay earlier this month in the New York Times by Elizabeth Spires. There has been so much discussion on Tom and Giselle about their divorce. But what we haven't heard is about their marriage. And as the article points out, we never really know what goes on in anyone's marriage, what goes on behind closed doors. And the truth is, I'm sure we all have had the friend. The friend that would never in a million years expected to get divorced. And then all of a sudden he invites you out for cocktails or dinner and he breaks the news that him and his wife are splitting up or the family member who breaks the news to you or the colleague who you thought had the picture perfect marriage. And maybe Tom and, and Giselle were that celebrity couple for you. 
Giselle and the children celebrating each championship and every Super Bowl win on the field with hugs and kisses while everyone held up high the championship trophy. Or Giselle posting on social media all about Tom's accolades and how she loves him and supports him. Maybe we didn't really know what was going on behind the scenes in their marriage. What were their discussions about life, work, marriage, career sacrifice, and expectation? And more than anything else, the article is a wonderful look at marriage and the issues that come up when there is either a one-income family or a two-income family. And as Tom and Giselle are, both spouses are super career-oriented and career-driven. And so, I, Dave, what do you make of the whole Tom and Giselle situation? As the article talks about, they're both career-driven people. And perhaps, as the article suggests, look, if Brady was going to continue to prioritize his football career and was really never going to call it quits, and we've heard Tom talk about playing until he's 50, maybe this really did cause a rift, a rift that was a lot bigger than all of us may have realized. So, yes, and I think that is just a logical reading of things from – and I think two things you said, Evan, are important. One is that may be the case in, and it's happened in other divorces where the career gets in the way, either from one or, or both members of the marriage. And look, what do we know? We know that he had certainly flirted with retirement. In fact, officially he did retire, or at least said he was going to retire one day. Soon thereafter decided, no, I'm not going to retire. There are all kinds of things about Giselle having said in the past, you know, we kind of made a deal a couple more years and that's it. So, uh, you know, a reasonable person's conclusion as to what we're looking at here is, yeah, that was that probably drew was a splinter in their marriage. But the other thing you said is we don't really know. And, you know, I, I guess I have a little bit of a dis distaste for people who saying you blew it, Tom. You had the perfect wife, the perfect, you know, life. And you had to your own ego going back to play again, had to get in the way of your marriage. We don't know. No marriage is perfect. There might have been a hundred other things going on in their lives as well. So who knows? But it's but it is kind of a it's a sobering reminder that no marriage, no marriage is perfect, no matter how much we think it is. And those people that turn on Tom, as I found during my marriage, is, you know, some people uh, admittedly, I lost friends in the marriage. People kind of thought, uh, I don't know what you did, but must have been something bad. And that's a shame. But he'll find out that his true friends will will uh, stand up behind him. I think he's still probably got a few friends. <laughs> Just a few. And look, I think as the article says in the title of the article, marriage is hard. Yeah. Marriage is hard. Well, and thank God for people like you to help pick up the pieces because you'd be out of a job. That's exactly if, right. If marriage was a piece of cake, <laughs> you might be out of work. Item two. Headline in the Atlantic reads, The Case for a Long Divorce. Some people, says this author, going through breakups are reconsidering the best way to end a relationship, including how to honor their time together. Gives the example of someone quoted in the article who, well, remains anonymous for the purposes of the story. But what she says was she didn't want necessarily what someone consider a clean split. And in, in fact, before they made the final decision to split up, she and her husband went through hours and hours and weeks and weeks of therapy before finally calling it quits. That was what she preferred. Your thoughts on the seven. Have you heard of this before? I'm sure you have the, the long divorce. Dave, my first thought when I read this was who the hell wants a long divorce? <laughs> I mean, 
<laughs> Every phone call I get is, Evan, get me divorced tomorrow. Why yeah. is my divorce taking so long? Why can't I get divorced? What's wrong with the judge? Why is the court system back up? So, Dave, who the hell wants a long divorce? But look, most people are looking for something different, a different way to divorce, a different way to separate, a less adversarial process, a less, a less expensive process. And if you can find that alternative to a knockdown, drag out divorce litigation, it makes all the sense in the world. And for some couples, look, it's much easier than for others. And as this article in The Atlantic talks about, the phrase conscious uncoupling, a term coined by Catherine Woodward Thomas, guest and friend of the podcast, and how the process of separating can be one that couples navigate together with therapy and how the perspective is to honor the time that a couple spends together rather than looking at just simply how to end it. The article mentions, and look, I can't believe this. I'm going to ask you if you could have ever envisioned a scenario. Mm. I can tell you that I can't. The article talks about a couple who went through this long divorce with therapy and ended up going on a divorce moon. I mean, call me crazy, but the mm. last thing I would want to do is take a trip with my soon-to-be ex, I think, to the Greek islands. I don't know about, I mean, maybe it's me, but... Yeah. yeah, maybe maybe my friends, maybe you know somebody else, but you know who knows. Yeah, no, people have. We, we've talked about it before in the podcast. People have divorce parties, but it's not where both spouses are present. Yeah, unusual. I, I mean, I guess we we have to say to each his own, right? I mean, I I wanted, I didn't want to prolong my divorce. If anything, I, and you you know this, Evan. Sometimes people will come to you and say, "What do I need to do right away? I've moved out of the house. What do I need to do right away?" And my lawyer's advice at the time was, "You actually don't need to rush into anything. You don't need to sell the house immediately, etc. As long as your spouse isn't forcing you to do so, so you can take your time with certain things." But I'm with you, Evan. It's a sad process. It makes you sad that this is ending. So I'm not sure why you would want to draw it out or take it to Greece or whatever. Well, I'll tell you, if you're going to take a flight, it wouldn't be a you know a 12 hour round trip to, to to from New York to Greece. It would be about you know maybe a 20 minute drive around the block, and that's about it. That's a lot of hours, awkward hours on that plane together. Well, Evan, I can tell you that me, along with many others, have started to binge the new season of The Crown. And a lot of it has to do with the Charles and Die divorce. That is the subject of this week's Shine on Spotlight. The Shine on Spotlight. And Evan, I'm going to play a little bit of the trailer of season five of The Crown so our uh, listeners can get a feel for what we're talking about here. In light of the events of the last 12 months, perhaps I have more to reflect on than most. The royal family is in genuine crisis. Have royal scandals damaged the country's reputation? The House of Windsor should be binding the nation together, setting an example of idealized family life. It's a situation that cannot help but affect the stability of the country. For years, I've called for a more modern monarchy that reflects the world outside. I don't think it's my behavior that's threatening its survival. You, as future king, have a duty. People will never understand how it's really been for me. I never stood a chance. Well, those last two voices you heard were actors portraying Di and Charles. And your thoughts for the spotlight, Evan? Dave, I got to tell you, if this doesn't get you fired up to watch The Crown, I don't know what, <laughs> Will. Great job by you on this find. 
And look, one of the best guests we've had in the podcast was Syracuse University media scholar and professor Bob Thompson, because we talk so much with Professor Thompson about how marriage and divorce is portrayed on the screen, in film, in TV. Is it reality? Is it fiction? And I have to tell you, there is so much buzz around this season of The Crown. I haven't watched all that much of The Crown. I'm started from, you know, I went back and started from the first episode of season one. I can't wait to get up to this season. All about the divorce between Charles and Diana. I'm fired up to watch it. I know you've seen a few episodes of this season. What are your thoughts? Does it accurately portray Mm -hmm. what we all read about what you thought about the, 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 the relationship, the divorce, mm-hmm. because, you know, look, anytime you have a show that's based on history, especially the Royal family, so many people have so many thoughts. Mm-hmm. Did it capture it correctly? Yeah, I, or did it didn't miss the boat. I think so far it's done a good job of giving us little slices of what it might've been like between Charles and Diana. I mean, that that's the question that sort of we're more interested in from portrayal of divorce on the screen. And the, well, Interestingly, one of the biggest complaints is that Dominic West, I know you're you're a fan, Evan, he was a star of The Wire and The Affair. All, people say he's too handsome to portray Charles, <laughs> who had a little bit more of a, a gawky look in those years. And that may be true, but what it could, just like we talked about earlier in this episode about how, you know, glamorous people get divorced too. And in the in the clip we just heard, the Charles character talking about how I guess we've got a modern monarchy now, just not the way we wanted. And what he means by that is that this royal family, and not just Charles and Di, because there are several divorces among different players in the in the royal family, and that they had a real tough situation. They were uh, apparently were both miserable. This is I'm not telling people something I don't even know, but the, the show does a good job of showing us little snapshots of what it could have been like to be as lonely as Diana was, to be as sort of between a rock and a hard place as Charles was, because Charles goes to the queen and basically says, it's time. We have Diana and I have to split. We're, we lead completely different lives. And you heard her in the clip. She says being in the royal family is about duty, Charles. And so he's, he's got to decide. Between. Now, we all know in real life what happened. They did, in fact, get divorced. Sure. But like every divorce, it, it was probably a lot more complicated and painful than they would have hoped. I'll tell you, Dave, with an impression like that, season six might feature the great <laughs> producer, Dave, you know, in the, in the show. But look, I'll tell you what. How about Dominic West and yep. his career? Just going off the divorce topic for a second. The Wire. Mm-hmm. The Affair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Crown, yeah, the cr- so many other shows in between. I mean, th- this guy, I mean, just continues to, to to star in so many incredible shows. Well, maybe, maybe. Do, now, were you a fan of The Affair? Did you watch that show? Yeah, no, we yeah, talked yeah, about we, it before the podcast. I'm, I'm sorry, of course, of course. Yeah. And so he, he'll he be someone maybe we keep talking about on this podcast because because he, in that show, did a nice job of showing. Now, he was not a perfect character on that show. He was He was flawed, certainly. But you did end up rooting for him, I think, at least here and there, right? You you felt like he was mostly a good guy. Even his ex-wife kind of thought he was mostly a good guy. And I think Dominic West is an actor who, who shows you – he can show you both faces. He can show you the good guy, the flawed guy, and the troubled guy. And that's, you know, for a guy getting divorced – that, that's that's the full uh, package right there, I think. And yeah, so, it's true. Uh, and producer yeah. Dave, with a spotlight like this, you hit it out of the park yet oh, th- again. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, maybe we'll revisit The Crown after you've seen it all. Let's do it.
Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine On Podcast is Dr. Jonathan Fader. For over 20 years, Dr. Fader has used performance coaching to help pro athletes and everyday people lead meaningful and satisfying lives. He has counseled the New York Giants, the New York Mets. Dr. Fader uses motivational interviewing, performance training, and cognitive behavioral therapy to help people unlock the psychology of success. He is the author of the best-selling book, Life as Sport. Dr. Fader, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Evan, it's great to be on with you. Dr. Fader, your work is absolutely fascinating. I'm excited for this conversation. So let's dive into your work and your practice. So a typical coach gives athletes advice, different training methods to perform better on the field and off the field. How would you describe your role and the work that you specifically do? I mean, I think it helps, Evan, to put it into context, you know, a story from when I started working in in professional sports. You know, everybody asked me, how do you become a sports psychologist? How does that happen? <laughs> right. Like it's like every every one of my friends who's ever watched a football game, let alone followed the Giants or Mets or any or any sports team. And they're disappointed to know that my secret in getting into sport and performance psychology is speaking Spanish, that I speak fluent <laughs> Spanish. And one of the stories I I tell about getting into this field that helps to put it into context was I started off with the New York Mets. And just like that movie Bull Durham, you know, where people are running around in the minor leagues, right? There's 200 players. One of my absolute all-time favorite movies. Yeah, absolutely Classic, classic. It's such a classic, right? And so it covers the minor leagues, right? Which are the 200 players that are beneath the major leagues. So we look at all these players that are making a ton of money and, and doing really well at the, at the major league level, but there are all these players that are traveling around, you know, really struggling to make it. They're ages 16 to, to 25. And, you know, I started working with those guys and, and half of them were Spanish speaking. I remember being in somewhere like Kingsport, Tennessee, and there are all these, you know, future, future major league baseball players, 16, 17, 18 year olds. And I, and I hear them and I, you know, at that time I was kind of like, you know, like everybody is imposter syndrome, doubting yourself. You're just starting in a new thing with all these elite, elite performers. And I hear them around and I hear them saying, you know, el psicólogo, which is the Spanish word for psychologist. And then I started, started feeling good about myself and feeling really into it. And then they, and I hear them saying el psicoloco. And they were just teasing me. And, and, and it, you know, while, while there was that misunderstanding, them saying psicoloco, and it really points to a differentiation in, in what people think about psychology. So psychology, people think of, and we're in New York, you know, people think of shrinks. They think of the Sopranos lying on a couch, but we're more of a stretch. Our role in sports psychology and in performance psychology and the work that I do with executives and coaching other people and, and first responders is to help people that are already doing pretty well and help them to do better. So it's taking people, certainly we can help with problems and there are people who are experience some degree of, of stress around their on the field and off the field life. But most of what we do is helping people to go from good to great. As you think about the work that you've done, and as you reflect on all the different people, whether it's leaders in companies or athletes, is there, could you give us an example of a time where you helped an athlete or someone turn around their career? I mean, I think that, that the, the, I would say for me, one of the things that I had most joy about is actually working with people, you know, baseball players would come, I'm remembering one, you know, major league baseball player and, and he would come to me and he would say, you know, and he said to me like, listen, you know, I just, I got to get more strikeouts. And 
I really relate to that question because that question is what we all experience. Sure. Like we all feel like, hey, I got to have better results in my life. And, and I, I shocked the guy, I think. And I said, you know, like, you can't do that. And he was like, what? You know, I'm ready to get my, myself thrown against the wall by a 250 pound guy who's like, you know, six inches taller than me. And, and he was like, what are you talking about, Fader? What do you mean I can't do that? I said, look, whose job is it? Whose job is it really to, to strike out? And he's like, he looked, he leaned back a little bit against the clubhouse wall and said, it's the, it's the hitter. I was like, right. Right. And so that conversation really shifted working with this particular player, but it also formulated one of my concepts that I think about a lot is that we stress out a lot about things we don't control. And there's that aphorism you see on Instagram, like control what you can control. The issue is, Evan, no one's working on how to do that. They know what they should do about, about controlling what they can control, whether it's like their PL, the outcome sure. of a particular case they're working on, a relationship issue they have with their husband, wife, or partner. But no one really works on the techniques that help you to be able to control what you control. You give advice to so many different athletes. How is the advice that you give professional athletes, how can that be used in non-sports context? So going back to what we were talking about before. So my, my, in coaching people who are attorneys and coaching people who are executives and CEOs, I find that most people are really focused on the bottom line. How do we get more clients? How do we, how do we improve the outcome of a particular case? How do we uh, make more money? What, how to increase the P&L? But people often don't take the time to think about what, what I call the levers that they can pull in that process. In other words, when you sit back and you think about really what are the things that I impact here? So to give you an example of a context that we think about this and what we talk about in sports is controlling your ape, where ape stands for your attitude, your preparation, your effort. So what I always have people work through is like, what are the things you're doing to have the best attitude? What that could look like is, you know, when you get frustrated at work, how do you interact with the people that you're talking to? It can mean how quickly can you come back from a setback, right? I have a friend who's a Navy SEAL, a leader of Navy SEAL. And, you know, what he, what he talks about is he gives himself 60 seconds. Are we taking more than 60 seconds at work? Are we ruminating on the way home over and over again about something that went wrong in a particular decision? This is, you see this in, in, in finance a lot. So really taking that same example from sports and saying, how quickly can you get, how good can you get at metabolizing, at breaking through and processing results that aren't that great? How great can you get at, at resetting? And in football, you know, so much focus is on really snap to whistle, yep. right? Snap to, everything is about like with well, a play, the play, the play. And what people don't realize is so much happens whistle to snap, you know, in your mind. And that we're not paying attention to that. How do we break free and reset from that, that past play? How do we break free and reset from that mistake or the thing that didn't go well with a particular financial decision or something that happened in a meeting and move on? So let's go to the mind because I think it's obviously a fascinating topic. What do you find that holds people back in general? Is it anxiety? Is it fear? And this can be whether it's athletes, whether it's people in finance, attorneys. What holds people back? We're, in my view, the most fundamental desires that we have as people who have most of their daily needs and their daily needs met, right? So if you if you have enough to eat, which you know I feel grateful that I do, and enough and I have a place to live, 
but when you're talking about being your best at work, what most humans crave is to belong and be accepted and also to know that you're being your best. And what comes with that, Evan, is a big fear of exposing yourself as not being one of those two things. So I think what holds people back the most, if you look to the opposite, how do people excel? People excel when they take risks and they, they differentiate themselves. For example, you, right? How many, tell me how many other people, matrimonial attorneys have a podcast? It's a great question. None that I know. None that I know. That's one of the reasons I wanted to be on here, right? Because I never, I've been, I've been on a bunch of podcasts. I've never been in a podcast, a podcast in this context. Now, if, if I, if you asked me how many matrimonial attorneys would want to do this, I bet you a bunch, right? I bet you there are a bunch that would want to do that. And the difference between you and those people is that you said, you know what, like, maybe I'm not going to do this perfectly when I started. Like, I'm not, look, I'm, I'm an attorney. Like, I, no. I'm not, I'm not, I didn't go to like, I didn't get my master's in media or whatever. I'm not an actor. I'm not, you know I mean? This is not, I'm not, I, I didn't get a broadcasting degree, but I know how to talk to people. I'm good at it. So what I'm saying is, and, and just to take your question, uh, you know, another step, the reason I think that people don't do what they want is twofold. One has to do with importance and the other one has to do with confidence. So people, confidence is a messy black box of a thing that people don't know how to directly affect. And I think my experience has been that most of the time it's fear, but it's really the sense of fear of what? Fear of being exposed as like not having what it takes and the resulting thing. Other people want to do what you do. They want to have this podcast. Other people want to do, want to do what I want to do. They want to work with lead athletes, though. but they don't, they won't take the risk because of what might happen in terms of what might socially or emotionally happen to them as a result. You hear so much about this concept of positive thinking, positive psychology. Tell us about that concept and does the power of positive thinking, could it turn an average athlete, a mediocre athlete into something more? This is such a critical question. And I just want to pause and say, you know, to, to, to all the people that are listening, even, you know, this is so frequently misunderstood and it's a danger when it's misunderstood. It's dangerous to misunderstand what it means to, to think positively because just simply thinking positively is in my mind equal to like having a lucky rabbit's foot that it doesn't, you know, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's great, but it's not going to help. Right. And, and. So then just to differentiate, positive psychology is a really interesting field that's different from positive thinking. Positive psychology, one of the biggest proponents is this guy Seligman. And it, it really thinking about what can you do in your life to adapt your life and your thinking to have the most joy, happiness, and meaning in your life, in your relationships and your work. And, I, and I'm a big advocate of positive psychology in general. Positive thinking, I think, though, is, is frequently misunderstood. The way I referred to it in, in, in Life is Sport, the book I wrote, is, is objective optimism. The sense that, you know, really what you're doing is actually, it's almost the reverse, right? It's almost like not negative thinking, if that makes sense. Meaning we have a negative bias, right? So what I, I've worked with many athletes who, you know, something goes wrong and they're like, my season's over. And you're like, whoa, 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 like, let's yep. slow that down. And so to be very concrete, the, the things I work on with people are examining the errors we make in our cognition. The biggest mistakes that we make as humans are one, 
we really jump to conclusions. We go into a bar and someone looks at us and look away and all of a sudden we think something about what that person's thinking about. Sure. You know, you can, you and I have done a million presentations in our life and I guarantee you, if you're in a boardroom with 20 people and one woman or one guy is like looking at their phone, you're going to notice that person first, right? 100%. 100%. Yep. Yep. We have a negative bias. And so it's really reversing that and saying, let me make sure I'm not jumping conclusions and let me make sure I'm not blowing things out of proportion. Even if that person is looking at their phone in this meeting, so what? What does that mean? Does that mean that it invalidates the other successes I'm having? And so I would say it's the reverse. It's kind of like neutralizing negative thinking to think in a more even keeled way. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist, but that's kind of just, just chance. I just, just happen to be, I just happen to be an op optimist. I happen to, you know, view things in a positive way usually, but what you're doing is you're training your brain to be more optimal and adaptive and look at more clearly and not let our negative bias as humans take over, take over our life in a negative way. So Dr. Fader, we're recording this episode on the Monday following Football Sunday, which, you know, Football Sunday in your world, and I'm sure you're glued to the TV. Take us into that room. You mentioned an athlete. You mentioned injuries. Take us into the conversation you have with a professional athlete the Monday or the days that follow a season-ending injury, whether it's a torn ACL, a torn ligament, and especially in the game of football, right, which is, you know, professional athletes you know, the shelf life, you're looking at three to five years, take us into that conversation. How hard is it, right, in the game of football to get a professional athlete to take a step back and realize, you know what, just because he suffered a season-ending injury, it doesn't mean life is over on the field. This, you know, Evan, is something that, that has much overlap. I mean, I've certainly been in, uh, you know, on Monday mornings, in an NFL locker room and had those conversations many times. I, I have it still with athletes after injuries. And I would say that just like if you have a physical injury, like let's say, you know, your back hurts, it's usually because other muscles also aren't strong. And what I know to be the fact is when we have a big emotional reaction to something like that, it's because we haven't strengthened our other muscles of our mind. So to give, to give you an example, what I find is the athletes that react the most strongly to injury are the ones that the rest of their life isn't really perfectly, isn't really put together in, in an awesome way. So, you know, we call this, the way we talk about this is kind of, one of the terms we used is pillars of self-esteem or pillar, pillars of self-worth. Athletes, as well as other humans, you and me, you know, we need to have other things that are valuable to us in our lives in order to be the best at what we do. I find this to be the case with, with not only NFL players and, and Major League Baseball players, but with attorneys and with, you know, people in business as well. You know, if your entire identity in life is wrapped up in that, in being an athlete or being a lawyer or being a judge or whatever it is, if something goes wrong in that, you've invested all of your self-esteem in that particular thing. And if you're not also having value in practice and being a mom or a dad or a partner or a dog owner or a surfer, or whatever it is that you do, or, you know, a, a weekend warrior, a golf player, whatever that you, is that you do. If you don't have that, those other pillars, then you're very vulnerable to having a bigger emotional reaction. And secondly, what I tell athletes all the time, even outside of injury, is the playing field is not these 100 yards out here. The playing field isn't the diamond. The entire, your entire life is your playing field. It just so happens that there's a portion of it in which you have to be, it's so pointed, but your whole life is your playing field, just like for you and me, right? When I did before this podcast, 
if I ate 12 Krispy Kreme donuts and didn't do my push-ups or whatever it was, you know, like I'm going to show up with a different version of Fader, just like you did. You came sure. to this ready. You have questions. You're thoughtful about it. You know, you've looked me up and you know who I am. And we have this connection about this sports and stuff like that. So anyway, so when I, I think, Evan, one of the things that we think about too is what has this person done to create compensatory mechanisms for being able to react? And another thing I say to people is like, this is the game now. The game is no longer football. The game is rehab. But let me ask you a question about that, because to me, that makes all the sense of the world. But to the athletes who starts at a very young age where they become known as really the athlete, it starts in elementary school, let's take football, you know, Pop Warner, Pee Wee League, all the way up through high school, college. They're known for what they do on the field. So when you talk about identity and try to talk about all the other parts of an athlete's life, to me, that makes all the sense in the world. I get it. But to the professional athlete who is known to so many as the athlete first and foremost, I would imagine that's a pretty hard conversation. It's very hard. I mean, it's extremely challenging. And I think one of the things that's challenging is it's the challenging thing of talking to anybody about anything difficult, which is you have the tendency to want to talk more than you listen. And, you know, a lot of our work is realizing that listening in itself is a, a treatment or mechanism. And I would say that if you, if you were really there if you, listening to these conversations, a great deal of what happens is just really listening to the athlete and taking in their story and understanding. And I think people think of that as being passive, but it's really not. So much of what doesn't happen well in all kinds of relationships is becoming a consummate and expertless. And what that means is to be able to hear what people are saying, but also to show them through what you say back that you're hearing their struggle. I couldn't say anything that I said. I, so to your point, starting off with the pillars of self-worth thing before you really take in that person's story and realize how absolutely traumatic that experience can be for people, it doesn't land. They're not gonna, they're not gonna wanna go there. And sometimes, you know, to, to your point even more, sometimes people can't even have that conversation for a week. It's like the Monday morning conversation isn't really there. It can't happen. It can't happen until the next Thursday or the next Monday until things have settled in a bit. But, you know, there's a quote that I go to all the time for all kinds of scenarios, which is, things are not as they are. Things are as we are. And so what you're doing is you're helping people to realize that the filter in which you look at things is determined what determines what you feel. I, you know, I do an exercise with, with football teams and baseball teams all the time where I have everybody define mental toughness. All right, so I hand out note cards. It's hilarious. Some of the stuff I, getting, that back with, I can't even. I, can't I was going to say, I'm sure you, you asked 10 people, you're probably going to get a different answer from uh, all 10 of them. I mean, the, the things that people <laughs> write on there, it's like, you know, not for a regular TV or podcast. But, you know, I, I'll say one of the things that one, one NFL player wrote down that I thought was really genius and summarizes what we're talking about. He's like, mental toughness is having a great filter. And so for the athletes that don't do well in injury, it's because their filter really isn't great right? That they're zooming in too much. They can't mentally time travel to when they're going to be better. Assuming it's not a career, a, a career ending injury, it's a, a kind of a different conversation, but most of the injuries that I've dealt with over my career are not career ending, right? They're maybe at the most season ending. And while that's horrible, you know, people who have great filters realize I'm going to feel different about this, you know, just like you, just like we work on feeling different about conversations at work. I think the biggest thing I've learned about managing other people is don't talk now, like wait, right? Like wait till the time is right to say what you want to say. And that's such a learning experience that you know, I think 
athletes in the real time need to learn, like, I'm going to feel different about this injury in a month. I'm going to feel different about this injury in, in six weeks. And to your point, it's harder to do when you're 18. Sure. But, you know, that's a thing that we coach them towards. Dr. Fader, we hear so much about athletes are in the zone. They're unconscious. We've never seen an athlete perform like they're currently performing. What does it actually mean when the average fan hears that player is in the zone? You know, it's such a mystery, but I can tell you that there's a guy who Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and if you think I said his name right, that's because I, I practiced it on YouTube. And he's a legend, <laughs> and he wrote this book, Flow. And it's all about what you're asking about, which is, you know, what, what's happening when people are, you know, in flow. And I would say flow, flow, one of the ways to define what you're talking about is where, you know, things slow down and you can just see things and feel things on an intuitive level. And I, I'm sure, I mean, like, I'm sure you can relate to this in a, in a negotiation or all of a sudden you like see what's below the lines, right? Yeah. Like, People are saying things, but you're like, oh, I see what's going on. You know, like, it's, it's not very apparent. And maybe if I was there in the same meeting, I wouldn't even see it. I'm just see people arguing or whatever. But you're like, oh. This yeah, it's coming to my mind being in a courtroom, cross-examining a witness, giving an opening statement, that type of thing. And it's coming. It's the, the moment it slows down. And yeah. What, and what happens for yeah. you? Yeah. What happens for you in those moments? I mean, the adrenaline's pumping. I mean, going into it, you're in a courtroom, cross-examining a witness, and it's just... You sort of, I mean, you block out really all the outside, you know, noise and you're so laser focused and it comes so natural. It's free flowing and you, you're just, you're, you're, you're on top of what you need to be on top of and adjust a, I mean, it's a, it's a great moment. It's a great feeling. So here, here's where I think podcasts fall short because no one could see your smile as you started to talk. <laughs> I think that's where podcasts kind of fall, you know, and that you will have to repost the video of this section because. I think your smile is what speaks to it more. It's this kind of like pleasurable, confusing, almost laughable moment, but it's really you're locked in. And I think the words that you use that I think are most important here are you said adrenaline and you said blocking out. And those are things that people experience in these sports situations too. You know, mo one of the quotes that some one of my colleagues said, I can't remember, is, you know, that what you're trying to do really is focus on the right thing at the right time every time in sports. And that's true of everything. Um, and that in the zone, you just have this natural ability to just block out or kind of occlude the things that don't, that aren't relevant. So the, the, the sad punchline, I'll work back from the sad punchline of all this is that we don't really actually know what causes that. <laughs> right. Yeah. However, we have a sense and a lot of what include a lot of what leads to that obviously is reps. Like the more time you have experience. But the other thing is to be able to find a certain kind of attentive piece in the moment. Right. And, you know, one of the things, one of the thoughts about that, one of the things that definitely interferes with being in the zone, there are two things that interfere with being in the zone. One, you said adrenaline. So the way we think about that is physiological activation, right? Sympathetic nervous system response, fight or flight, right? And, if your, if your kind of activation level is too high or too low for your task, right? So think about football, for example, because sure. we've been talking about it. If a kicker or a punter is too revved up, you can imagine that they're going to miss, right? Yeah. They're going to kick it in a place 
where it's not going to be great, right? Sim- similarly, if you're on the offensive line and you're not ramped up enough, and so where, where the zone is, is really where your ability meets the demand that's placed on you. And that has a lot to do with what you're saying to yourself before you go in, what kind of mindset you bring, but also like your level of presence and, and relaxation that you bring into that situation. I find that people that have the right level of physiological activation, the right level of kind of alertness are more likely. And the other part about this, which is a paradox, is... And this is so hard to understand and to put into effect is, you know, you have to both not care about the outcome. I'll say that again, because that's so weird. You have to not care about the outcome, but care so much about what you're doing. So my, my experience is that people have made the most tremendous financial decisions in, in investing when they just kind of give up and are, let it rip, but also are very prepared and put a lot of work in. Similarly, working with attorneys, like people who do really well, or people are like, I'm going in and I'm going to go for it, right? But not recklessly, like with a real good plan. And you think of this as sort of like a samurai mindset. It's like, I'm willing to die if I know I'm going in the right direction. Like if I know that this is the right way to go, then I'm willing to just put it all on the line. No, it's fascinating. Dr. Fader, let's talk about some recent headlines in the NFL. Antonio Brown, this guy makes headlines Time and time again, he's had his fair share of incidents, both on and off the field in recent years, which follows him playing at a superstar level for several teams, notably the Pittsburgh Steelers. Why do you think it's been so hard for Antonio Brown to right the ship and really get the help off the field that so many people think he needs? You know what I think, Evan, is that I just think I've talked about Antonio Brown so much over the years. Like I, I've said the words, I mean, so many times Antonio Brown comes up in conversation more than like so many players. And, and I, I got to think in some ways, you know, Antonio Brown is, okay, let me back up and say, one of the ways to think about like uh, a problem in a family, if someone comes in, they're like, my kid's acting, my kid is, is doing this, or my wife is mad at me. One of the ways to think about that is that that person acting out is just a symptom of a larger family issue, right? And yeah, I mean, you know, it's not that you're going to blame the family entirely, but like there's something going on that led to that. I think Antonio Brown is just a symptom of a larger issue, which the NFL is addressing. But, you know, you have to build a very, very robust identification and treatment system to be able to you're always going to have people like Antonio Brown, like always. I just think that, you know, for me, it just means that we haven't fully crushed this way of dealing with the stigma around mental health. And I'd like to believe, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm getting back to my optimism here. So you got to crack a whip and get me in line. <laughs> but I'd like to believe that if if you if you said, like, we're going to invest this much time and money and have people tasked, you know, starting at the combine starting like when people were the first foot that they laid in, in the NFL, we're really having a targeted program where this is getting identified and addressed early. That stuff is happening because I know people working in that space, but there's way more time and money being invested in other aspects of sport than, than this. And there's way more in, in, in general health, keeping people healthy. You know? So I think if the same amount of time and money was spent on that, I think you'd have, we'd have a different outcome in, in many sports. 
Yeah, no, I tend to agree. Dr. Fader, let's talk about Tom Brady, not for the headlines he makes on the field, but for the headlines that he's made off the field following the Super Bowl. And his saga in terms of his marital problems or alleged marital difficulties off the field, it's been a topic of conversation for the past 10 months. And so Tom Brady's no stranger to being in the public spotlight, but seemingly he's done such an amazing job at keeping his private life out of the spotlight. Sort of reminds me of Derek Jeter here in New York. So what advice would you give Brady four weeks into the NFL season, 10 months into reports first surfaced that there were marital problems as a result of Brady's decision to return to football? It's really, I mean, that's a difficult thing to answer. I mean, without knowing the situation, I think because you really want to know the context of what's going on. So without talking to Tom and knowing what particularly is going on, but you know, I mean, it's one of the reactions I have. This is where I think that we as fans fail. We're always talking about how athletes fail, but how do we fail as fans? I think we fail as fans in one really critical way. We fail to recognize and empathize with what happens for professional athletes. The thing I always say to people, you know, like when I, even when I go on, you know, whatever ESPN or uh, people will say like, well, what's going on with this guy? And like, why would he act that way? And what I think about this is just because people are making a ton of money and have fame and fortune, we fail to recognize that they're humans and they're going through a lot of, of really stressful stuff. I, I always say, imagine like Evan, okay, you're in the courtroom. You think you have a good day right? You're like, you're, you're really making progress on a particular case. And then you walk out, you're walking down the courtroom steps and you're mobbed, mobbed by reporters, right? And they're asking you about stuff. And then they start asking you about stuff that's happening at home. And I think, you know, what some people say about that is, well, like that's the life they chose. That's true. I mean, they did choose that in some way, but it's still putting it into context and realizing that, you know, what, what, talking to elite athletes like Tom Brady all the time, they have to work every day to not only deal with their family life, but then also to get through the criticism that other people have. To me, Tom Brady is a massive success. If you can make it, well, first of all, let's just not, let's just forget about the, what he's done, you know, as an athlete. But if you can raise a family, I mean, let's just say everything is true still. I mean, you know, if you can get to the point where you get, you're, you're married to a supermodel, you're, you are. You know, at your, your, however old he is now, 43 or 44 years old, and you're, you're at this level of the NFL and you're living in the state house with your family. <laughs> I mean, like this guy deserves like another trophy for that in my view, right? Because we all know how hard that process is. I mean, I spend, I have a lot of couples sessions with professional athletes and their partners. And, you know, to me, it's like the Olympics, right? Because you know, it's already hard, as you know better than anyone, to make any kind of marriage work or partnership work. But then when you have such, you know, visibility and in, in their family, both members of the family have visibility. So I, I think what I would say to him is like, you're killing it. I mean, let's, if, you, if he wanted to talk about like things, if there was something going on, but I would say like, I would start with like, let's just start with the fact that, you know, you're in the 99th percentile of humans. You know, like, I forget, is this his first marriage? I believe so. Yeah. I mean, your first marriage, it goes at this point, whatever, 20 years or 15 years. And, you know, you're famous. You're what? I mean, that's out of control. That's out of control. I mean, to me, 
you can't that you couldn't give this guy too many props for that kind of thing. I mean, like half of my friends are divorced or, you know, a quarter of my friends are divorced. Yeah. So it's just in the norm. I mean, you know, but what's the divorce rate now? More or depending less. On, depending on the day, depending on the year, but you're, you're hovering around a little over 50%, which is actually down from what it was in, in, in past years, which when you think about it, you, you know, it's a mind-blowing statistic. Especially, yeah, right, for the context. But then you think like, okay, so I don't know if there's a study on this, maybe you do know, but I would bet that professional athletes have a higher divorce rate than that. So yeah, I think, you know, it goes back to the negative bias. We notice what's wrong. We all do about ourselves, about other people. And I think we fail as fans to really say, you know, because all the, also, Evan, I think we like it. Like, I think one of the reasons that we like this is like, it's like everybody likes this because then it's like, we feel better. Like, these guys are messed up. Like, we're doing all right. But yeah, no, it normalizes your own, uh, exactly. your, your own life. It's exactly. exactly what it does. You know, exactly. Brady's having marital problems. You know what? It normalizes, you know, the stuff that all of us are going through. Totally. But I think you can normalize them the other way, right? Which is to say, like, look, this is like, you know, as, as amazing as he is, he's, he's a normal human. Sure. So staying with, staying with the marriage theme, Dr. Fader, let me ask you this. How can people mentally condition themselves to navigate the ups and downs of marriages and relationships, intimate ones and professional ones, whether it's athletes or everyday people? You know what? If I wasn't married, I'd marry this question because I love it so much. Um, I really, I think it's such a great question. I have some very specific things to say about it. Fundamentally, one of my major learnings and, and coaching aspects that I work on with everybody, whether, you know, executives or, or athletes, is that we spend so much time. Everybody says this, like we spend a lot, how much time do you spend at work, like versus your family? Yes. But the other thing we do is we spend so much time planning our work life and very little time planning our home life, planning what we're going to do. And so what I, what I say to people is like, you need to be able to create a routine for your, for your home life, right? Date night is like a minimum bar in my mind. Like you gotta, <laughs> you gotta be able to say like, I'm spending this much time with my loved one. Like, but you know, I think people don't do that enough with their kids. I'm a busy person just like you. And if I don't schedule that into my time, so really thinking back, how much time am I devoting and am I curating it? Like, am I thinking ahead of time? Am I just going to go to a restaurant or am I going to try to have an activity? Even if it's just like a walk or a picnic or whatever. The other aspect I think of this is there's two other things I think are helpful. I'll end with, I think, kind of the most important technical one. The second one is mindfulness, right? That, you know, I, I practice mindfulness every day. I think it's very confusing to people. People think it's this, you know, elaborate thing when simply it's just having a time every day where you can slow things down and be present with whatever's going on in your life to close your eyes and, you know, be with things exactly as they are and exactly. As, there's many apps for this, Headspace, Calm. You know, John Cabot Zinn's work, Tara Brock's work. But, you know, having, and there's actually a great book about this in corresponding to athletes called The Mindful Athlete, which was written by George Mumford, who taught Kobe and LeBron to meditate. But, you know, having that, that distance, Viktor Frankl, who was a, he was a psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He, he said it in a way that I think makes a lot of sense. He said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is a choice. And in that choice is our freedom. And so typically what happens is someone says something in a marriage and the other person goes nuts. There's no space. There's no like pause and calm down. And without training that, you're never going to do it. Just like if you train something, if you don't train something in practice, you're never going to do it in a game. Sure. Sure. 
And the last thing I would say is, is Imago, which is a style of therapy that I think is phenomenal. And it's, Imago therapy is, it, it teaches people a method for how to communicate in relationships. And I found it to be really, really helpful in my own relationship with my wife um, and, and many, many athletes. And it, it really gives you a mechanism. You know, I always ask people, how'd you learn to drive? Like, how'd you learn to drive, Evan? I, I think uh, I'm trying to remember which one of my parents told me how to drive, but I can tell you it was not a great moment for them. <laughs> <laughs> but they taught you, right? They, they took, did. You know, they did. They right. Did. But that, if, now that I think about it, it's coming back. I think it was my dad. I think my mom got in the, got in the front seat and then screamed to my dad, there's no way I could, uh, I could effing do this. And then she got out and he came in and yeah, I'm not sure it was that much better for him, but uh, yeah, it was my dad. Yep. Yeah. So they, they taught you, but when you think about, you know, how we learn to love, we just learn by observing and sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's bad, but I can guarantee you that we all, you know, no matter who you are, you learn to love in a different way than the other person has learned to love. You know, my, my, I, I learned to drive in a very similar way than you learn. You know, it's not that different, right? But with love, we learn in all these different kind of ways. And so having some, some norms and a, and a guide to be able to communicate about attachment and love and all the things that go with it, all the topics we like to talk about, like sure. sex and money and parenting, those are secondary. But how to talk about attachment and communication in a way that's helpful most people don't spend any time on that, any time on learning how to do that, any time on coaching. And most couples therapy, I think, is a lot of it is not that effective if it doesn't have a way of teaching people how to do that. If it's just a referee, by that time, you might as well see you. Yeah, <laughs> you're not wrong about that. Dr. Fader, let's go through a few quick issues and tell us what comes to mind. Roger Maris, he experienced such stress in his 1961 home run chase that his hair fell out what comes to mind what comes to mind is is the fact that most of us don't really understand or appreciate the mind body connection and that you know we if i if i ask a room of 100 people what are you doing every day for your physical health most people would say they exercise or at least they'd lie and pretend that they're exercising but if you ask <laughs> them to raise their hand and say what are you doing for your own mental conditioning yep people don't do it and so in that situation, but even in day to day, it just brings to mind the fact that we're not doing enough to create, to evoke a relaxation response. Wade Boggs and other athletes have had to watch their love wow, life. Man, you're bringing me back, man. This is, you're bringing me back to, I remember watching the 1986 World Series. That's right. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yankees and Red Sox. Wade Boggs, I mean, his affairs, everything was public news in the, in, in the newspapers, the tabloids. What happens when an athlete's love life? becomes public. Now, this goes back to like the Brady discussion a little bit in the sense that I think what comes to mind mostly is that there are two classes of people. I think one people have, you know, prepared for that already. And for those people, it doesn't change much, but the other people are unprepared for that happening. And for those people, it just becomes kind of steroid to whatever is there. It's just like, in my mind, you know, alcohol magnifies what's already there. Like if there's a problem and people are drinking past the point, you're going to see whatever that problem is. Sure. Right. It's not like it creates it out of midair. It's got something's got to be there and it, 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 you know, it amplifies it. And so I think the attention and the news can amplify for the couple, whatever's there. So now we're going to go to the 90s and early 2000s. Atlanta Brave pitcher Mark Wallers, he famously lost his ability to throw a strike. Ex-Yankee Chuck Knobloch, he couldn't throw to first base. What happens in the mindset in a situation like that? 
So this is what is called in baseball, the yips. And actually, there's so much superstition around this, Evan, that in professional baseball, people don't even say the yips. They just say, hey, <laughs> hey, Peter, you know, this guy, he's got the thing, yep. right? Because there's so much fear of talking about it. And that's actually part of the problem, that people begin to believe this is a spell almost. And it's not. It can be very clearly explained. Really what's happening is uh, you might have seen the Charles Barkley golfing video where he yep. has sort of a similar effect where he's going to hit the ball and all of a sudden he kind of freezes up. What happens is that a very fluid movement that's really natural becomes cut up into smaller movements. And actually, you know, what really is happening is you're you're dividing something into smaller things and you can't really think about something and do something at the same time. And, you know, the book, The Inner Game of Tennis, talks about this a lot, is that there's kind of two mindsets or two ways of being. One is the thinker and the other is the doer. So if you're in a situation where your mind is too much caught up in thinking about it, then you're going to, you have a more chance of, of freezing up. And then you begin to fear freezing up so it gets worse. And there are many different ways to, to go at this. Mindfulness, as I talked about, is one. The other one is a form of therapy called exposure therapy in which you get people to do things that they're actually afraid of. And the other things that can sometimes help with this are imagery and practice so that when you're out of the game, you're practicing the kind of way you want to relax and, and be in the moment. Simone Biles, four-time Olympic gold medalist, withdrew from the team finals because of a mental health issue. Tell us your thoughts. I mean, I think she's a hero. Um, I think that, you know, this goes to the to the conversation we had about Antonio Brown. It's like, I think if Antonio Brown withdrew from something earlier in his career, people would be like, what's wrong with him? But that might have been the right choice for him to do. But I don't think we, we have established an environment, financially and otherwise, that incentivize people to do that if they really need to, to, do the, to do the time. And I think the other thing it brings to mind, too, is I think with, with Simone Biles and other situations, it's unclear whether things are mental health or mental performance. And, you know, clarifying that for athletes and having the right kind of health and for people in general. So, you know, I see some people in, who are athletes who actually it's just all about performance. Once, they, once their performance thing is cleared up, they are good. I think in, you know, in, in her case and in other people's case, there's probably a much more complex thing and, and there may be trauma and other things that are involved. So making sure that that person gets the right, you know, kind of help for what's going on is really critical. Dr. Fader, I have to tell you, this was absolutely fantastic. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. This this was a blast. It was a blast for me too. I, I'm looking forward to one day observing you get in the flow, you know what I mean? And getting in that. And also maybe we'll, we'll compare our driving lessons and commiserate over that. <laughs> I would say come on into the courtroom, 60 Center Street, anytime. Love to have you. I'm going to, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. This is I'll great. help you. I'll help you when you're going out the door too. And you have all the reporters in your face, you know, we'll, we'll handle that together. I was going to say, now, if we add producer Dave to the mix, you can take uh, those 100 reporters and uh, multiply that by 10. Exactly. <laughs> Episode 51 of the Shine On Podcast. What an absolutely terrific show. Dr. Fader was brilliant. Producer Dave, I need this guy back. He was great. <laughs> and you know who else is great? Yep. You're great. Producer Dave of the Boston Podcast Network, making it happen. You opened by saying, what do we do for an encore? Well, I'll bring up the aforementioned Tom Brady and... When people ask him what his favorite championship is, he always says, the next one. My favorite episode of Shine On Podcast is always the next one.
There we go. And that's why you are the legendary producer, Dave. Thank you to all the listeners. You can listen to the podcast and all major podcast platforms, Apple and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Follow the podcast, subscribe. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon. 